Oh, hi. Hey, podcast listeners. This is your podcaster, your blogger, Ann Althaus. It's, I think it's Tuesday, one week before the big election. Are you prepared for the election? Are you watching all the rallies? Trump uh, going about doing uh, multiple rallies in one day? Uh, what's going on? Well, I have a lot going on, and I've really only got three posts up today, but I'm going to tell you about them, and then I'll be signing off for the day. The first post is, <laughs> well, you know, oddly, I have three posts, and two of them are about Obama. How did Obama keep popping up? There must be something to that. But the first post, the one I put up this morning before I went out for my morning run, was uh, at 6.47 a.m. that went up. When was the sunrise? Maybe about 7, it was 7.25 the other day, so it must be about 7.27 now. Anyway, it wasn't much to see. There were a lot of clouds. But uh, the first post has the title, Obama Twirling and Skittering in Lidditz. Trump in Lidditz. So on April, it begins, on April 2nd, 2008, going back in time, I blogged about Marine Dowd's assertion that Hillary has clearly raised Obama's consciousness about the importance of courting the ladies. Okay, now we know that uh, Trump is making a thing these days of trying to get um, the women. So Hillary has clearly raised Obama's consciousness about the importance of courting the ladies. She fleshed out, Maureen Dowd, fleshed out the theory like this, quote, touring a manufacturing plant in Allentown, Pennsylvania Tuesday, Obama was flirtatious, winking and grinning at the women working there, calling one sweetie, telling another she was beautiful, and imitating his daughter's dance moves by twirling around. Later at a Scranton town hall, he went up to Denise Mercury, a pharmacist from Dunmore, wearing a Hillary button. What do I need to do? Do you want me on my knees? He charmed before promising, I'll give you a kiss. At the Wilbur chocolate shop in Lidditz Monday, he spent most of his time skittering away from chocolate goodies as though he were a starlet obsessing on a svelte waistline. Oh, now, the woman managing the shop told him with a frown, you don't worry about calories in a chocolate factory. At the time, I said, wait, is Hillary toughening him up or feminizing him? And is the feminine stuff nauseatingly stereotyped? Look at all the stereotypically feminine things pasted on Obama. He was flirtatious. He was twirling. His dance was an imitation of his daughter's dancing. He charmed. He skittered. He acted like a starlet obsessing on a svelte waistline. He was chided by another woman for worrying about calories. There's less shaming of Trump for seeming feminine, but it happens. He was mocked just two days ago for dancing like a woman. And here, look, Obama was uh, basically teased for dancing in imitation of his daughter's dancing. And uh, Trump was mocked for dancing like a woman, as one liberal commentator put it. But the reason I'm going back to that post is that it's about Lidditz. And Trump gave a rally in Lidditz. My maternal grandparents are from Lidditz. 
they are buried in the Lidditz Moravian Cemetery. And uh, here's a little quote about Lidditz from uh, Wikipedia. Lidditz was founded by members of the Moravian Church in 1756 and was named after a castle in Bohemia near the village of Kunwald, where the ancient Bohemian Brethren's Church had been founded in 1457. For a century, only Moravians were permitted to live in Lidditz. And then here's Trump in Lidditz. I embed the whole, um, I embed the entire uh, uh, rally. And I say, I'm so pleased to see him in the home of my ancestors. From the transcript, quote, for the last half century, Joe Biden's been outsourcing your jobs right here in Pennsylvania. You were one of the biggest victims of it. Now Biden is trying to ban fracking. You heard it the other night. Oh, it was so nice. He almost made it through the debate. I was a little surprised. Wasn't great, but he was fine. And then we talk the energy question and he forgot. He forgot. Now we want to wean ourselves off energy. Oh, that's not so good. And I said, Texas, are you listening? Pennsylvania, are you listening? Now he's going to ban fracking because he has no choice. His party wants to ban it. He's going to ban fracking and deliver an economic death sentence for Philadelphia, for Pennsylvania, and for many other places in our country. In last week's debate, Joe Biden confirmed his plan to abolish the entire U.S. oil industry. I said, you mean no more oil, Joe? Well, that's what I mean. I felt like Perry Mason. You ever watched Perry Mason? That, that last little, it was always the last minute. I did it. I did it. Yes, I did it. I was Perry Mason. No oil, Joe. And I said, here's what that I did it. I did it. Yes, I did it. Looked like on the old Perry Mason show. And I have a little embedded YouTube with the uh, classic, typical Perry Mason uh, scene, which is very much unlike real uh, courtroom scenes. Uh, where where be somehow because Perry Mason is such a great lawyer, people who've committed murder and hidden it and gotten away with it up till now somehow break and start saying, I did it. And that's how Trump portrayed himself at the at the debate. I should have pulled out some more from from the Lidditz rally where he talked about women trying to appeal to women because that's that's what um, that's what Obama was trying to do in Lidditz. I need to get back to Lidditz uh, someday. I want to see it and visit it and, and really look at it as, a, as an adult. I actually have to say I haven't been there since my uh, grandfather was buried in 1975. So I know the graveyard and I'd be interested in visiting the graveyard, but also seeing the town as a town. It's one of the classic uh, small towns of America and very much associated with a particular religious group the Moravians. That's my own family background, Moravians. So I see a lot of people talking about Trump and Lidditz and saying he's courting the Amish, and they're saying the Amish. Uh, but uh, Lidditz, Moravian. You never hear about the Moravians anymore. And my grandparents, who we called mom and pop, moved to Delaware. Well, it's kind of funny. Like, like Joe Biden, they moved from Pennsylvania to Delaware. So they ended up in Delaware. And my grandfather worked for DuPont, as, as did my father after a while. But, um, yeah, we lived in uh, Delaware, and I sometimes heard about Lidditz, but I never, and also just Lancaster County in general. 
I heard a lot about that, but I didn't hear so much about the Moravian Church. Once they moved to Delaware, they went to Presbyterian Church. Um, is that like Moravian? I find that a little hard to believe, and I'm sorry that I don't know more about that. But uh, maybe if I went on a trip to Lidditz and saw the old ancestral hometown, I could uh, I could study a little more about what the what the Moravians really believe. They're one of the oldest um, Protestant uh, denominations in the world. So the second post is about, about Amy Coney Barrett's uh, uh, swearing in last night. I think some people were saying that she was, she, it was like she was appearing at a campaign rally by participating in a swearing in ceremony at the White House. I thought that was a, a little strange. It was a swearing in ceremony. Like she, she didn't need Trump anymore. Once she had that confirmation, she could have just skittered over to the Supreme Court, uh, taken the oath of office over there and gotten to work. You know, separation of powers have nothing to do with this person, this strange person that uh, opened the door for you. But once you're through that door and the senators got you the rest of the way into the third branch of government, just get in there and have nothing to do with the political branches of government. Be totally aloof. But if you participate in a swearing-in ceremony, you're bringing some glory to the president. You're showing respect to him, participating in the ceremony. Some people were irked that that even happened. Um, I was interested in her speech, which came right after she was sworn in. And I was mostly interested in watching the ceremony just to see Clarence Thomas. I'm, I'm very interested in Clarence Thomas. And uh, I must say that even though we're getting a new Supreme Court justice and Trump is facing uh, his reelection or failure to get reelected in, in uh, just a week, I was most interested in just how is Clarence Thomas doing and how is he feeling about all of this. But I didn't really get much information about that because all he did was stand there and uh, then deliver the oath of office and he was inscrutable. At one point he took out a piece of paper and unfolded it and then refolded it. So I gotta say, I'm, I'm the kind of person who found the most interesting thing, maybe not what you would find the most interesting thing. It was Clarence Thomas unfolding and refolding the piece of paper. But after she was sworn in, Amy Coney Barrett gave this, gave a speech, and this is the most substantive part of it. Now listen carefully, because I'm going to say that there's something ambiguous in it. The confirmation process has made ever clearer to me one of the fundamental differences between the federal judiciary and the United States Sen Senate. And perhaps the most acute is the role of policy preferences. It is the job of a senator to pursue her policy preferences. In fact, it would be a dereliction of duty for her to put policy goals aside. By contrast, it is the job of a judge to resist her policy preferences. It would be a dereliction of duty for her to give in to them. Federal judges don't stand for election, and thus they have no basis for claiming that their preferences reflect those of the people. This separation of duty from political preference is what makes the judiciary distinct among the three branches of government. A judge declares independence not only from Congress and the president, but also from the private beliefs that might otherwise move her. The judicial oath captures the essence of the judicial duty. The rule of law must always control.
And so that's Amy Coney Barrett in her short speech, and I linked to the transcript. I said, I read that as more than an acceptance of the confirmation process that has developed in which senators openly vote their policy preferences rather than truly or fakely premising their vote on the nominee's character and credentials. She's saying that senators have a duty to take policy goals into account. Did she mean to say that the confirmation vote ought to embody the senator's policy preferences? Or did she only mean that when senators do their legislative work, they must consider policy, which is what corresponds to the judicial role and contrasts with it, as judges must refrain from considering policy? It's ambiguous. I hope to get clearly written opinions from our new justice, so I don't like running into ambiguity as the first thing she says as a justice. So you see what I'm calling ambiguous? She blended together two things. One was the confirmation process. She said the confirmation process made something clear to me, made it clearer to me. Of course, she knows the differences that uh, the legislative branch takes policy into account and the judges don't take policy into account, or, or so it's supposed to be. That's the official line on what judges are really doing. They all say that, don't consider policy. Used to be that liberal judges would openly say that they do consider policy, but now they all deny it. It's become an article of faith that judges don't use their policy preferences, that they decide based on the law and nothing about their policy preferences. So um, we have that difference between the legislative branch and the judicial branch. So fine, I get that. But if she said the confirmation process made that different way of behaving clear, then is she saying that in the confirmation process itself, the senators not only can, but should think of their policy preferences? So in other words, maybe she was just talking about legislation and saying, you know, the Congress legislates and they consider policy. And then when the the legislation comes to the court, the judges are not supposed to consider whether they would vote for or against this law if they were a member of Congress or a state legislature. What they're supposed to do is only decide based on law, and sometimes a statute is invalid because it's not in line with the Constitution, but there's no way a judge ought to be finding something passes constitutional analysis or fails and that that decision should be based on whether she would like to vote for the law if she were a legislature. So that's a standard analysis of separation of powers and legislation. But what about the confirmation process when a senator is considering whether to confirm a nominee for the court? Should the senator um, also be considering policy preferences? In other words, all the liberals vote against Amy Coney Barrett and all the conservatives vote for her because they're hoping for liberal or conservative results, even though she's saying, I won't be pursuing a conservative political agenda. I'll just be doing my judgely work in the judgely fashion. But the senators think, well, this is going to affect results, whatever you say. I think results are going to be affected. I think policy is in play when decisions go through the Supreme Court. And it was Amy Coney Barrett saying that when senators decide whether or not to vote for a judicial nominee, they 
not only can, but should consider their policy goals. It sounded like she said that, but I kind of don't think that she meant to say that. I kind of think she just meant when it comes to legislation, senators are supposed to consider policy preferences and judges reviewing that legislation are not supposed to consider it. But she ended up saying, and I find it hard to believe she would mean this, to say that the senators actually have a duty to consider their policies, their policy preferences, um, so that what has developed in the Senate, where if it's a conservative president, all the Democrats vote no, and all the Republicans vote yes, and if it's a liberal president, all the all the uh, Democrats vote yes and all the uh, Republicans vote no, and that's the way it's supposed to be. Let's just openly vote for the kind of judge we want, even though that judge once on the court isn't supposed to consider policy at all. Uh, is that the way we're gonna do it from now on? Because if we are, how would you get any confirmations when the party that holds the presidency doesn't hold the Senate? You couldn't get them appointed at all. Or you could say, well, in that case, the president needs to pick a compromise candidate, someone in the middle, a moderate. I mean, maybe that would be a good idea. Maybe we have too much of an extreme with liberal justices and conservative justices. And if we have some examples of presidents who don't have control, don't, don't, are not in parties that control the Senate, then they'll pick some real moderate people. Like when when uh, Obama picked Merrick Garland. I think he was picking someone quite moderate so that it would be relatively easy for the Republicans who controlled the Senate to go ahead and vote for him. Of course, they didn't because they wanted to hold that seat open for the, for the next president, should it turn out to be a Republican, to uh, fill. And, and that is indeed what happened. So it's getting quite, all of this is to say that it's getting all getting quite openly political, and I don't know how we'll ever climb back out of that. And if there's no way to climb back out of it, that's all the more reason to just go ahead and screw the whole thing up with court packing, if that's going to happen. Well, that all depends on who wins the presidency, but I'm a little worried about where all of that is going to go. Even as Amy Coney Barrett was speaking in terms of being a completely unpolitical uh, performer of government duty once she's uh, ensconced in the third branch of government. Now, my last post of the day, and I'm just going to read this to you and be on my way, is um, the New Yorker has an excerpt from what looks like, it seems to be, and is said to be a uh, the forthcoming memoir from Barack Obama. So, it's an excerpt from the forthcoming memoir, and it's published in the New Yorker under the title, A President Looks Back on His Toughest Fight, the story behind the Obama administration's most enduring and most contested legacy, reforming American health care. And I say the return of the prose style of Barack Obama. Okay, I just picked a little excerpt just so you can see the way this thing is written. And we all have our tastes. I don't know if you have the best taste on the planet or something like it. I'm not saying my taste is better than everyone else's taste. Um, your taste is what it is, in part because you think that's what good taste is. Unless, uh, well, I don't know. Does Barack, o I mean, does uh, President Trump 
think he has good taste or does he sort of like bad taste? Is he sort of a, a practitioner of, of bad taste or rich, uh, exaggerated taste? What is his taste? Anyway, it's a matter of taste. It's not to my taste, but let me read this to you. This is, again, the prose of Barack Obama from his forthcoming memoir. Quote, but of all the pleasures that first year in the White House, wait, but of all the pleasures that first year in the White House would deliver, none quite compared to the mid-April arrival of Beau, a huggable four-legged black bundle of fur with a snowy white chest and front paws. Malia and Sasha, who'd been lobbying for a puppy since before the campaign, squealed with delight upon seeing him for the first time, letting him lick their ears and faces as the three of them rolled around on the floor. With Bo, I got what someone once described as the only reliable friend a politician can have in Washington. He also gave me an added excuse to put off my evening paperwork and join my family on meandering after dinner walks around the South Lawn. It was during these moments, with the light fading into streaks of purple and gold, Michelle smiling and squeezing my hand, as Beau bounded in and out of the bushes with the girls giving chase, that I felt normal and whole, and as lucky as any man has a right to expect. And I said, I am emphatically not a fan of Obama prose. With the light fading into streaks of purple and gold, Michelle smiling and squeezing my hand as Beau bounded in and out of the bushes with the girls giving chase. Please don't do that. The light is always in streaks, fading into streaks. No, it wasn't. The girls couldn't just chase the dog. They had to give chase. Now, I'm positive this style of writing will thrill a certain sort of reader. And the people eat up, who eat up prose like that probably buy a lot of books. Hey, remember when I argued with Michelle Goldberg and took the position that Sarah Palin's memoir, Going Rogue, wasn't really that bad compared to Dreams from My Father? Remember Sarah Palin? And by the way, Obama wasn't really a dog person. The dog was a prop. The dog is still a prop in the purple, fading, streaky sunlight. So I'm a little bit of a, you know, I don't like, you know, Obama is praised for writing at this level as if it's really, uh, as if he deserves the Nobel Prize in literature as well as the Nobel Peace Prize, that it's just so brilliant. It's so good. So part of why I think it's bad is that it's praised too highly. It's overpraised. And, um, but, uh, but the, it's a style of writing that I think is kind of like creative writing class. And I said that in my Blogging Heads episode, Dialogue, that I did with Michelle Goldberg quite a few years ago, right after Sarah Palin's book came out. I mean, people were just so contemptuous of Sarah Palin. It was written in clear prose. She gave background into herself. Um, Dreams from My Father is written in more of a purple prose style that's designed to seem like you could hand it in in a creative writing seminar at college or something like that. Um, but uh, Michelle Goldberg was just shocked that I would say Sarah Palin was on a level with Obama's writing because, um, you know, she was just drippily fawning over Obama's writing. I can't stand that. And I don't think it's actually good for anybody trying to write 
that they're fawned over like that. And Obama was fawned over in, in many different ways. So uh, some of that is actually rather annoying. I don't really blame him. I blame the people who overlike him. You know, he's fine. He's fine. But he's, he's lifted up and uh, over-featured as a, an accessory of people who think they're fine people, good people, um, right-thinking people, and who feel just too good about their liking of Obama. I would like to like Obama, and I do kind of like Obama, but um, I think he's over-liked by other people, so I think some, some uh, pushback is needed. You know, actually, how can you become a good writer if every time you hand something in, people act like it's just brilliant and wonderful? I mean, how can you be a good president when they give you the Nobel Peace Prize just for getting elected for doing nothing? I mean, in a way, Obama was deserved. We weren't good enough for Obama because we were too in love with ourselves, too in love with the way we loved Obama. I like the way Obama is now out and about and helping Biden, even as Biden is hiding in his basement. It's weird seeing Obama trying to pull uh, Biden over the finish line, being out uh, trying to do campaign events. Um, boy, Joe Biden better win after what Obama is doing for him because you, you wouldn't want Obama to be embarrassed. Obama is trying. Uh, and, uh, and maybe people will vote for Biden just because they don't like to see Obama fail. That's the kind of, and um, you know, of course, seeing Trump fail, that's a lot easier to take. And some people are so eager for that to happen that part of me looks on and uh, kind of, uh, well, I won't say anything. I'm standing back. I'm not picking favorites. I'm not saying who I want to win or lose. I'm really, uh, well, you know, Obama is kind of a, a, a cool, aloof character, so I'm, uh, I'm sort of doing my Obama impression.